Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time we read the very exciting chapter 17, the showdown between David and Goliath, David and Goliath, and we noted how David, in spite of the fact that he was unarmed, was able to overcome the giant through his trust in God and, of course, his handy slingshot with a single smooth stone, he felled the highly armed giant Goliath and then proceeded to cut off his head with his own sword. The Philistines were routed, the Israelites triumphed, and of course, the chapter focused our attention on David as a character who takes initiative, on David who through his own merits earns the kingship that was bestowed upon him, potentially at least, in chapter 16. And we explored the contrast between these two perspectives of David being placed in position to one day succeed Shaul. On the one hand, the chapter 16 version, which focused our attention on the divine design, the divine will, the divine choice of David as the one to succeed Shaul. Essentially, David was a passive object in the chapter 16 version of the story. And this version of the story, which actually proclaims David earns the kingship by taking the initiative and putting his trust in God. Of course, David enters the Western canon based on the events of these chapter and the Western artistic canon as well. Many were the artists who depicted David in painting and in sculpture. Certainly during the period of the Renaissance, David was represented by the great Renaissance sculptors, Donatello, Michelangelo, Bernini, each one in their own way. Michelangelo's David is perhaps the most famous representation of this biblical character. And astonishingly, as Michelangelo represents David, he is completely naked except for the slingshot casually placed upon his shoulder. Obviously, that's an attempt to recover the ancient nudes of the Greeks and the Romans, but at the same time, Michelangelo is allowing us to consider David as a completely unarmed character, vulnerable compared to Goliath, and yet able to prevail. That particular sculpture was executed for the city of Florence as a symbol, the Republic of Florence as a symbol of their own power and their own pride. But nevertheless, it offers an interesting commentary on the events of chapter 17. In any case, in our version of the story, clearly David was clothed, but certainly lightly armed compared to the invincible weaponry of Goliath. Weaponry 
of remarkable triumph. His fame is now sealed, but actually chapter 18 begins. There is no natural break in the original Hebrew between the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18. It is one continuous text. Shaul asks, who are you? Who's your father, lad? Ben Miatah Na'ar. Whose son are you? David answers, Ben Abdechai Yishai Beit Halichmi. I am the son of your servant Yishai of Bethlehem. And we're told immediately thereafter, at that moment, that David completes his conversation with Shaul, Yonatan's soul becomes literally Nikshira, tied to the soul of David, and Yonatan loves him as himself. So this incredible friendship now develops between Yonatan and David. Obviously, we can appreciate why they're both cut from the same cloth. Yonatan also is a figure who is able to put his trust completely in God and to take initiative and to courageously engage the foe and to defeat him. Except, of course, David's version is a number of orders of magnitude greater than Yonatan's victory in chapter 14. But nevertheless, we can appreciate how this incredibly deep bond now develops between the two. And David now enters into the employ of Shaul, not only as a harp player in the court, but as an, a warrior and an officer. The text indicates when David returns from the battle, the women of Israel go out to greet him and the king, and they offer the following song with their instruments, Hika Shaul ba'alafav v'david berivivotav. Shaul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And when Shaul hears those words, he realizes that in fact, David now emerges as the major threat to his rule. Verse 9 indicates, from that day onwards, Shaul was suspicious of David and regarded him with great fear. The next day, David is with Shaul. David is playing his harp as was his custom. Shaul has a spear in his hand. He says, I will strike David through right into the wall. And David manages to escape the deadly blow twice. So we note, of course, we'll see this a number of times. David, Shaul and his spear seem to be inseparable. Even as Shaul is in his palace, sitting upon his throne, his spear is never far from his grasp. And of course, this paranoia that is beginning to develop will only become more acute as the story proceeds. In any case, David is able to escape the lethal blow. It's quite possible David wasn't even aware of what Shaul attempted to do. I'm sort of reminded of a cartoon. If, as it were, the villain fires at the innocent protagonist, who happens to bend over at that very second to tie his shoelace, that would sort of be the situation here. It's not necessarily the case that David is aware that Shaul wants to kill him yet, which is why he does not flee immediately. David is assigned 
more difficult assignments on the battlefield by Shaul, and each time he is able to succeed. And the more that he succeeds, the more frightened Shaul becomes, the more Israel and Yehuda love David because he is the one that takes them out to battle and leads them back from it. And of course, we can sort of imagine even as Shaul has began to abdicate his responsibility of, as the king of Israel, which is why he refused to face Goliath on the battlefield to begin with, David now fills that vacuum admirably. Shaul has another plan. Remember that according to chapter 17, one of the promises to the one who would defeat Goliath was that he would have the hand of the king's daughter in marriage. And now Shaul wants to do that, but has a plan that through that marriage, he will be able to overthrow David by placing David into dangerous battle with the Philistines. David hesitates when Merav, Shaul's eldest daughter, is offered to him in marriage, and as a result, she ends up marrying someone else called Adriel from Micholah. But lo and behold, the text now reports that it is Michal bat Shaul, Michal the daughter of Shaul, that loves David. Shaul is told of her affection, and he agrees to it, and he decides that the best way for David to be neutralized is for David to fall and at the hands of the Philistines. Even though David says, how can I possibly marry the daughter of the king? What dowry can I possibly provide coming from such humble origins? Shaul says, all I will require of you is a hundred foreskins of Philistines, which is to say, you have to kill a hundred Philistines in battle and you will have the hand of my daughter, Michal, in marriage. Sure enough, David surpasses that. He strikes down the Philistines and kills 200 men. And sure enough, Michal is given over as his wife. So Shaul's plan, which he thought was watertight in order to destroy David, by placing him in the clutches of the Philistines, fails miserably. By the time this chapter ends, it seems as if those that are closest to Shaul, his own son, Yonatan, his own daughter, Michal, now emerge as David's greatest champions and defenders, which is to say, all of Shaul's plans to destroy David have come to naught, and those closest to the king actually are loyal to the one whom the king regards as the ultimate threat. Once again, we have a potent echo of an earlier moment in the Tanakh, the story of Pharaoh determined to destroy the Israelites at the beginning of Sefer Shemot, and of all people who should emerge to thwart Pharaoh's decree that the male Israelite children be cast into the Nile, none other than his very own daughter who preserves that Israelite Hebrew child, Moshe, who will ultimately grow up to overthrow Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out of Egypt. 
Essentially, the theme is the same theme. The divine will cannot be thwarted. As hard as Shaul tries to neutralize David, not only will he not succeed, but those that are closest to him, that should be the most loyal to him, will be the ones who prevent Shaul from realizing his plan. Intrigue now goes up a notch as Yonatan is brought into the circle of those that surround Shaul and are aware of his nefarious plans for David. Shaul speaks to Yonatan, his son, and all of his servants, telling them that David must die, and Yonatan immediately tells David what Shaul is planning and therefore advises him to go into hiding, which he does. The next morning, Yonatan will confront his father, advocate for David, and Shaul will listen to the words of his son Yonatan, and he will swear by God's name that David should not die, will not die, and as a result of that, David comes out of hiding and returns to the service of Shaul as it was prior to that. Once again, war breaks out against the Philistines. Once again, David is victorious. Once again, an evil spirit comes upon Shaul while he sat in his house with a spear in his hand and David was playing on the harp. Once again, Shaul attempts to kill David with a single strike through him and through the wall. And this time, David flees on that night, never to return. This is the beginning of a new chapter in the life of David which we will be exploring in the coming chapters of the book, David as a fugitive from Shaul's wrath. David flees to his home. Shaul sends his officers to arrest him and kill him in the morning. And this time it is Michal, seemingly, who has inside information of the plans and now alerts David that he must flee. Verse number 12, a scene reminiscent of Rahav the harlot letting down the spies of Joshua from the ramparts of Jericho, even as the king threatens her and demands their arrest. Michal lowers David through the window and he flees. And Michal now takes the teraphim, these mysterious objects that have some sort of a human form, she places them in the bed and she places a blanket of goatskin on the head of the trafim and covers it up. And when Shaul's officers arrive to arrest David, she says he is ill. Shaul says, it doesn't matter, bring him to me in his bed. But when the officers approach, they discover that in fact, it is none other than a decoy that David has escaped. Shaul turns to Michal, verse number 17. How could you have deceived me and allowed my enemy to flee? And Michal says to Shaul, he said to me, either help me flee or I will kill you, which of course is completely untrue. We'll return to this fact in a moment. In the meantime, David flees to Shimuel, to Samuel at Ramah, 
and he reports everything that took place, Shaul sends officers to arrest David in Ramah, but they are swept up in Shemuel's prophetic ecstasy and do not succeed in completing the mission. Shaul sends a second set and the same thing happens. And a third set and the same thing happens. And finally he goes himself in order to face down David and Shemuel. And as he gets to where they are, he is swept up like the messengers before him into a prophetic ecstasy. The Spirit of God comes upon him. He strips off his kingly robes and he prophesies before Shemuel all that day and all that night. And therefore it is said, Hagam Shaul Banivi'im is Shaul also to be counted among the prophets. Now, of course, the end of this episode with Shaul being swept up into a prophetic ecstasy recalls almost perfectly the events surrounding his election as king back in chapter 10. Remember what Shemuel had told him at the beginning of his career, there will be three signs. And in that third sign, you will be swept up in prophetic ecstasy and you will become temporarily a prophet as well. And that's precisely what happened to Shaul. And in that version of the story, there was so much potential and there was so much promise and there was such a bright future awaiting Shaul if only, if only he could subject himself to Shemuel's guidance. And now, of course, much time and many events have taken place in the interim and this is almost a wistful recollection of Shaul's promising beginnings. But of course, here it is so tragic because Shaul has been rejected and his kingdom will come to an end and he cannot secure the arrest of the threat that will destroy him, namely David emerging as the future king of Israel even as that earlier moment is recalled, Shaul, for a moment, once again, inspired with the divine inspiration, the ecstasy that animated him earlier. But alas, it is not to last. And David will emerge as the next king. So Shaul does not succeed in capturing David, and this will become a theme almost like cat and mouse, David always managing to stay one step ahead and to elude capture, even as Shaul tries his darndest to track him down. Just a note for a moment about Michal and the Trafim. There's sort of a triangle here. Call it, if you will, a wrathful father slash father-in-law that is Shaul, a protective daughter-wife, that is Michal, an innocent son-in-law who is preserved and spirited to safety through the instrument of the mysterious Trafim, which of course recalls events from the book of Genesis, as Yaakov is forced to flee from his vengeful, wrathful father-in-law Lavan, and it will be Rachel who intercedes to save her husband 
from harm through the agency of the trafim that she has taken from her father. I would like to argue that Michal's trafim, as it were, are literary trafim. What I mean by that is the author of our text intentionally used a word that reminds us of the earlier events associated with Yaakov, Lavan, and Rachel to recall that story explicitly. Or to put it differently, in this version, Shaul, as it were, is framed as the Lavan figure. David is framed as the Yaakov figure, seemingly the deceiver, but actually the deceived who has been taken advantage of by his father-in-law for 20 years. And Rachel slash Michal, the heroine who emerges, having to make the bitter choice between loyalty to her father or love for her husband, and she chooses her husband and spirits him to safety. Next time we'll talk about this a little bit more as we explore the rest of the section and follow the adventures of David as he flees from before Shaul. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.